You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Um, when you hear the word sermon, what, what do you think about when you hear the word sermon? Um, what if I told you that today you are going to hear the greatest sermon ever? That'd be good? That'd be good? That'd be all right? Hear the greatest sermon ever. Uh, Well, that's the intention of today's sermon. That's the intention of today's message. Um, So when I looked it up, and and so I looked up, um, what does the word sermon mean? Okay, so sermon uh, comes from a medieval Latin word, and it means speech from a pulpit. Okay, so so far, so good. This will be our acrylic pulpit. Okay, and then it is a discourse for the purpose of religious instruction or exhortation, especially one based on a text of scripture. So that's good too. So those two uh, definitions are, are good for me. It's the third one, though. This one kind of bothered me a long and tedious speech. Okay, <laughs> long and tedious speech. Oh my goodness, that's probably what most people think, right? And I appreciate that Young said he's gotten to know me. He had to get to know the pastor first. He's spoken to me, and he agrees with most of what I say. Well, you know, and, and I've gotten to know Young, and I've talked to him, and he actually knows a lot about the Bible, and I could say that I agree with most of what, what he says. Um, but, but what about the greatest sermon ever, where Young and I, we have to agree with 100% of everything that's said. 100%. Not just 99.9, but every word of it. That's in the greatest sermon ever. And if we look in the Bible, we can find the greatest sermon ever. If you would open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7, we have Jesus' longest sermon in the Bible. We have what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount was begun by Jesus in the book of Matthew. It begins in uh, chapters 1 and 2 about the birth of Jesus, about Christmas. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the baptism of our Lord. He's baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And then we have the temptation of Jesus, where he begins his battle on earth, the spiritual battle that we're going to be talking about at our retreat. But Jesus fights this battle at the very beginning of his ministry on earth with 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And he comes out of the desert. He comes out of the desert, strong and mighty, is towards the southern part of Israel, and he works his way back home to Nazareth, and then he continues up to the Sea of Galilee, and now he is going to begin his public ministry, and Matthew tells us he begins it here, he chooses four of his disciples, and then he speaks to the crowds of people that are coming near him. The Bible says that his disciples were coming near him, and then he began to preach. I wonder how much you and I know of the Sermon on the Mount. There are some pretty famous statements within the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You're familiar with this one. Blessed are peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. 
Blessed are peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. You know, that one's used by Christians and non-Christians alike. A number of politicians like to use that one. And then we also have um, verses in the Sermon on the Mount that might be used as a word of inspiration. If it's allowable, uh, these would be great words at a graduation service. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those are, those are hopeful words that's in the Sermon on the Mount. But then there's also solemn words in the Sermon on the Mount. There's words of warning. And in this warning, there are challenges that Jesus gives us that seem impossibly high in regards to the standard that he gives to us. For in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God warns us, and he sets an impossibly high standard for us to seek. We've heard this scripture before which is in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. The Sermon on the Mount goes counter-cultural and also counter-natural to our instincts. It challenges us and it calls us to do things that we don't naturally want to do. But then it also talks about things that we do naturally long to do, like pray. The Sermon on the Mount has the most famous prayer in all the Bible. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount also has wisdom in it. Proverbial wisdom where Jesus says, do not throw your pearls to the pigs. We'll find out what that means in a number of weeks. But Jesus wasn't averse to challenging us with thoughts that we would have to scratch our head and say, That's hard to understand. I'm not sure what that means. But then there are some things that are just very easy to understand. Things that we've heard since we were little children. And this one maybe is one of the more famous statements in the Sermon on the Mount. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And what's that called? The golden rule. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Where's that from? It's from Jesus. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have here a sermon preached by our Lord. And in it we have the words that God wants us to know. These are words that God would have us to believe 100%. But even more than that, to obey 100%. Sermons are important. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to help us to answer a number of questions, but I just want to point out three particular ones today that are important to what we're going to be learning as we go through the Sermon on the Mount over the next half of year, the next 25 or 26 weeks. And the first one is this, because every week you're going to hear Jesus' sermon. And so it's important for us to know, well, what is a sermon? What is a sermon? In particular, what makes this such a great sermon? For us to be able to understand this, we have to open up our hearts. We have to be willing to listen. We have to be like those disciples who come to Jesus and hear what he has to say. Even asking questions of what it might mean. But waiting to hear the answer. Let us pray. 
and ask the Lord to open our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of this sermon. And as we shall look at the Beatitudes, we pray, Father, that we might understand what they mean in our lives. And today, as we look at the introduction to the Beatitudes, we pray that we would understand, well, what is a sermon? Lord, we pray that this would be an important question that we actually ask of ourselves. And what is it in Jesus' words here that makes this such a great sermon? Lord, we pray that you would please open up our hearts. Open up our willingness to listen. That if you are who you say you are, then we want to hear what you have to teach us. Help us to believe. Help us to learn. Help us to question. Help us to find answers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what makes this a great sermon is the promise that Jesus gives us that first of all, a sermon is a blessing from God. When you hear a sermon, you should be blessed by it. Jesus' desire is that the people are blessed by it. He uses the word blessings innumerable times. And in these, we find that there are at least eight, some people count nine, but we're going to look at them as eight beatitudes, eight blessings that God gives to us. And we're going to read them together now. So let's stand, please, in honor of God and of his word, and let's read these scriptures out loud together. Let's begin. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. God has given to us these eight blessings, these beatitudes. The word beatitude comes from another Latin word meaning supreme blessedness. The, the word that we have here in Greek, the, the blessed are the poor, is a word that can just simply be translated happy, well off. That God wants us to be happy in the right way. God shows us that this is the way to find happiness. This is the way to pursue happiness. This is what God wants to give to us. And so he gives us these eight lessons, these eight truths about how to be blessed. And we're going to just look at them briefly right now. We're going to go over them carefully over the next eight weeks. We're going to look at all eight of them one at a time over the eight next weeks. But today we just want to look at them as a whole quickly that we might understand what we're going to be seeing. And what we're going to be seeing is how all of these eight blessedness, how these 
eight gifts from God come together and they work together. How they rise from one to the other. So, in other words, when the first one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, who are the people who mourn? They are the people who are poor. And then Jesus says, well, who are those who are meek? Because blessed are they. Meek people, meek meaning gentle, are people who have become gentle and meek because they have mourned, because they are poor. And who are the people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness? They are the people who have learned to be meek and to be gentle. And because they mourn, they have turned to God. And because they are poor, they are seeking things not of this world, but of God's kingdom and of his righteousness. And each one of them, as we go on through all eight of them, are things that happen as we continue to walk with God. They are tied together. They are what God wants us to have. They are the way for us to be able to begin to learn to walk like Jesus walked. Jesus wants us to be like this because Jesus is like this. If I had one book that I would recommend to you to read about the Sermon on the Mount, it would be the book called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So if you want to do your own study of this book or of the Sermon on the Mount, um, I highly recommend this book by Dr. Jones. But in it, he says this. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like him, the better. The Sermon on the Mount is what we are meant to be and to live as we are meant to live, to be like Christ. Christ is a God of blessings. He is the Lord who wants to give us the true type of happiness It's not the type of happiness the world offers. It's a different type. It's a lasting type. It's an eternal type. It's a type that changes our lives for the good of other people. It's a type that puts other people ahead of ourselves. It's a type that not only blesses earth, but prepares us for heaven. It is a blessedness that helps us to be the people you and I were meant to be, and all of us are meant to be like Jesus. All of us are meant to be like Christ. And so if we read and we obey and we seek to follow the Sermon on the Mount, we will become more like Jesus all along. And so the sermon that makes this, what makes this sermon so great is that it is the promise of God's blessings. The second thing that makes a sermon great is that it has authority. And this sermon is authoritative truth. It is not negotiable. It is real. It is lasting. It is absolute. And it is truth about God's spiritual kingdom. If you look in your Bible, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, as we begin to read the Sermon on the Mount, it says there, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. You're sitting down and I'm standing. That's the opposite way that Jesus taught. When Jesus sat down, he sat down like a king. He would sit down, a teacher in that day would sit down and have authority in his words. And so when Jesus sat down, it was a symbol of his power. It was a symbol of the reality of who he is and of the power of the words he was speaking. And he sat down to teach. And in the last verses 
of the Sermon on the Mount at the very end. So we begin there with his authority, and it ends with his authority. So if you look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, the Bible says, when Jesus had finished the sermon, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus' teaching was filled with authority, and people knew that authority as it came from his word. And you and I have his word today. We have his word today, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but we have it in all of the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is the only way, think about this, the only way we can really know God is through the Bible. If we didn't have the Bible we wouldn't have any certain way to know who God is. The sermon is God's comprehensive truth. This sermon is comprehensive to the truth of the whole New Testament of what Jesus teaches and what Paul teaches and what God's word brings to us. Jesus speaks to us so that we would have his word within us, that the kingdom of God would be inside of us. But he also tells us that we are going to be tested and that we are going to be persecuted. And so it's not something that we take lightly. It's something that we take seriously. But there is this amazing promise of the authority of the king, and that is that we are going to receive a kingdom. He begins his Beatitudes, and he ends his Beatitudes with that same authority, with the promise of the kingdom. He says that the people who are poor in spirit will receive what? The kingdom of God. And in the eighth one, he says the persecuted will receive what? Not just persecution. They receive the kingdom of God. And so Jesus brings to us his word so that we will not just hear it, but that we would apply it. And to apply it means to obey it. I think that every pastor, every preacher, every Bible teacher, greatest desire is that those who hear it would do something after they hear it, that it would inspire them to act differently. It would give them the desire to be different people, to be better people. And that's Jesus' great desire. His desire is that we would hear his words, we would obey his words. We would obey his words as a sign, not just that we know he loves us, but because we love him. And so every good sermon will have this, but the great sermon, the greatest sermon ever, definitely had this third quality, that it was practical. It was an admonition of application on how to love God. And not just love him a little bit, but love him above all things. To love him deeply. To love Jesus deeply. As we go through the Beatitudes, this is Jesus' invitation to show us how we can love him by obeying him. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. To hear the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to do what Jesus says. When you love someone, you want to do what they say. When you love someone, you find joy and pleasure in seeking to know their words and in doing what they want. God wants us to see the Sermon on the Mount as a message of love and to receive these Beatitudes as blessings from the one who loves us so that we want to obey. So this is what we will see as we continue to go through this sermon. 
that this is a great sermon of blessing. This is a great sermon of absolute authority. And this is a great sermon because it is practical to all of life, inside especially, but also outside in the way that we live. The second question that this sermon and the Beatitudes will answer is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Well, the world has a lot of opinions about what a Christian is, and media helps to promote the misconceptions of Christians. And sadly, Christians help to promote the misrepresentation of Christians. Like maybe you remember this guy, right? The John three sixteen guy. No, you don't. You don't know who this this guy is. Okay, so how many of you do? Only a few. Only a few. So this guy used to wear this rainbow uh, wig, and he would uh, somehow he'd end up at all the big events. He'd end up at the Super Bowl. He'd end up at the World Series. Uh, he'd end up at the NBA Finals, like what's going on right now, the hockey finals. He'd end up there, and he'd, he'd have signs. He'd either say, Jesus loves you, or John 3.16. Okay? And so at that time, people thought, this guy's crazy. And that's what they may have thought many Christians are. Well, today, also, um, maybe people think of Christians this way. They're just protesters, right? It's what we're against. It's not what we're for. And it's not to say that we shouldn't protest certain things. But there needs to be a heavy, a heavy leaning on love as Jesus loved. There needs to be the ability to give what Jesus wants us to be. And that's what this sermon is about. Jesus defines for us what it means to be a Christian. And this is not a sermon that tells you, do this to become a Christian. This is a sermon that tells us that this is how we are to live. This is how Christians are to live. This is not a code of ethics. It is a description of our quality, of the character of who we are. And as we read these Beatitudes, as we look at each one of them, this is what Jesus is like, and this is what every Christian is meant to be. A Christian is a follower of Jesus who is just like the Beatitudes. A Christian is a follower of Jesus who has every trait of them, not just some of them, but every one of them. A follower of Jesus is someone who is poor in spirit. A follower of Jesus is someone who knows how to mourn and who is meek and gentle. A Christian is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. A Christian is someone who not only to all those four qualities, but also is merciful. A Christian is somebody who is pure in heart. A Christian is somebody who is a peacemaker. And a Christian is somebody who is persecuted because they seek to do what is righteous and holy and just. And it is for all of us to have the Beatitudes in our heart. And for all of us to have all of them in our lives. Oswald Chambers says that Jesus came to make us what he teaches we should be. He came to make us 
what he teaches us to be. In other words, he works within our lives to help us. He works to bring the life of Christ within us. Pastor Yo Ping, in the message that he shared in the General Assembly just a half an hour ago, challenged us to be a church out into the world, to be a church that's revived in Jesus, a church that's renewed in Jesus, a church that is refreshed in Jesus, a church that is living for Jesus in this world to make a difference in this world. Do you want revival in this church? Would you want to see a church? What would this church look like if everybody was really, really on fire for Jesus? If all of us were living the Beatitudes, if all of us could say, I want to have these in my life, what might we look like? Will we be revived people? And it begins with us, the church's people. And the question isn't, do we want our church revived? The question is, do I want to be revived? Do you want to be revived? I want to give you a challenge, a challenge that I want to take for myself as well, that in addition to what I'm already doing and reading the Bible, and if you're not, then you just start with this, that every day, every day, you would read the greatest sermon ever. Every day, you would read Matthew 5 through 11. Now, you could read it by listening to it if you want on your Bible app. If you just sat down and read it, and I'm not a quick reader, but I can read it in 10 minutes. You can read it in that short of time. If you listen on a Bible app, you can listen to it in about 12 minutes as somebody reads it to you. So just read your Bible or listen to it. You can listen to it on the Version app, or you can listen to it on the Bible Gateway app, or you can even watch it on YouTube. There are, there, I looked it up, and there is um, different YouTubes that will have people acting as Jesus, reading out the Sermon on the Mount. And that one takes under 20 minutes. But would you take that challenge? Would you accept the challenge to read the Bible? If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out in the, in the uh, lobby, in the narthex, and you can pick them up for free. That God wants us to read our word. It's the way that revival happens in our life. It describes and it defines and it fills the Christian. And then thirdly, not only does Jesus tell us what a real sermon is, not only does he tell us what a real Christian is, but he also tells us what real happiness is. What real happiness is. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, when Jesus was speaking to the Jews, he might as well have been speaking to you and to me. Because what the Jews believed in that day was that the sign of blessing from God was material wealth in every shape and form. And so everything that Jesus was talking about was actually taught to the Jews as being a curse. So if you're poor, it's because you're cursed. If you're mourning, you did something wrong, it's because you're cursed. All of them. And so Jesus was taking each of them and he was turning them around. He was turning them upside down. And he was telling them that everything you, that you've heard of being a curse is not true. In fact, they are signs of God's blessing to you and to me. And God would have us to know this happiness by believing. By believing that Jesus is within us. And that he is in me in these times when I'm mourning. I seek him more. Do you pray more during good times or bad times? 
Do you, are, you, are you more eager to find God in good times or difficult times? If you're like me, it's during the difficult times that I turn to God more. And these are the blessings that we find in the difficult times. That God wants us to be blessed, not just to wait to be blessed, but to be blessed now. All of the blessings are present tense. Blessed are. Blessed are you and I who mourn. Blessed are you and I who are poor. God wants us to know the blessing is for today, that we can believe this. Not blessed will be, but blessed now. And God wants us not just to believe, but he wants us to also accept the reality of paradox in our lives and in this world. That it does seem like they are opposites. It does seem like they are impossible. But it is what God gives to us. And it is what you and I can experience. That the poor in spirit are going to receive something greater than all the riches of this world could ever buy. That the poor in spirit are going to receive a kingdom. A kingdom of God. A kingdom of heaven. And that those who are persecuted, even those who are killed and those who are martyred for the sake of righteousness are going to receive something that this world can't even begin to imagine its beauty, its greatness, its glory, and its worth. And that is the kingdom of heaven, that God wants to give us this joy. Now, to you and to me, it's hard to believe what God can do to change somebody to actually find joy in suffering, because you and I believe that suffering will never be joyful. But if we lived in a world where there was persecution and it cost us something for our faith, we would actually know this type of joy. And if we go out and we live our faith, as Jesus says, even here in the United States, we go out and we be the people that God wants us to be. And we begin to accept the circumstances of our life. And we turn to God in times when we are mourning. We turn to God in times when things aren't going right for us in regards to what we want for this world. Then we begin to seek another world and we begin to find the joy of another world. Um, when the staff and I meet, so when, when Peter and JC and I get together each week, uh, we usually study a book together to encourage each other for our faith and for our service. And the book that we're studying right now is a book by uh, the newest book by Francis Chan, and it's called Letters to the Church. And in this, he talks about an experience that he had when he went and he visited the underground church in China. And this is what he says in the book. Years ago, I was in China and visited an underground church gathering where I asked them about the persecution they were facing. And each person who stood up started sharing stories about persecution he or she had endured. Sometimes they had to hide in walls because the government officials were coming. Some of them even had to run from gunshots. But I wish you could hear the way they were sharing. Everyone was just laughing like it was a party. It sounded completely insane to me hearing them laugh about being shot at. But it didn't faze them because they just expected it. And in their prayers, they were screaming out to God to take them to the most dangerous places. I want to suffer for you, they prayed. I don't want to go to a safe place. I don't. Please, Lord, I want to be counted worthy to die in your name. Can you even imagine that? Can I even imagine that? 
that there could be joy in the suffering. There could be joy in the sorrow. That there could be joy in the morning. That there could be blessedness in difficulties. That there could be blessedness in perfect holiness. That there could be blessedness in going into a difficult situation and being a peacemaker. Can we believe that as we live out our faith, even though we might be laughed at, even though we might be persecuted, that that is the kind of life that really is life. This is what Jesus is telling us. And in his sermon, Jesus wants us to know that he is with us. He wants us to be like him. And so he offers to us also something that's great in every important sermon, and that is the challenge to a commitment, a commitment to loving obedience to Christ. I mean, if we can't read three verses, three chapters of the Bible a day, then how strong are we really as a Christian? If we can't sit down for just 10 minutes and carefully read Jesus' words, then what does that say about us? But Jesus invites us not just to hear words, but to hear him. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, ends it by saying this. So Jesus confronts us with himself, sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience, and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching of mind, will, and life to his teaching. And this is what God's calling you and me to, if we are to be the people that God wants us to be, to be called to an unconditional commitment to read his word, to know his word, to love him and his word so that we obey him. And so I issue again this commitment challenge to you. Will you daily read the word of God? And whatever you're reading now, would you add to it the three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, every day for the rest of this sermon series that you will know the Sermon on the Mount. And just by reading it every day for a half a year, you might even memorize most of it, that God would change our lives from the inside out. Will you make that commitment? Will you make it before God, not just before me and not just before your brothers and sisters here, to grow because this is the greatest sermon ever and it's meant to change our lives. Let's pray.